So today's reading will be from 1 Corinthians, and I'll be reading from verse 18 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 5. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we, t- we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. As we come to God's word together, why don't we ask God for his help? Let's pray. Father, this is your word. You're the one who speaks it, who spoke it in the first place, and the one whose help we need to understand it and to respond to it. So we pray that you, um, in power, by your spirit, would be working amongst us over the next few minutes as we consider your word to us and that you, then you'd be working amongst us as we try and live in the light of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We started off our service this evening by um, singing a song about bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. And um, I hope lots of us resonate with that thought Uh, If we're Christians, we know something of the joy of having uh, an affectionate father who will never let us go. And and we love that. It's a wonderful thing to know. And we look out at the world around us and the the people we know and all of the pain and all of the mess that there is. And we think, well, people need to know this. People need to, to be reconciled to God, to know his embrace. It's an urgent need. So the world longs to know, whether it realizes it or not, uh, relationship with God, what is 
the strategy for them finding out. This is a thing they really need to know about. What's the strategy? Imagine the Christians in first century Corinth asking just that question. Corinth is in, was in lots of ways a city a little bit like Oxford, relatively speaking prosperous, clever, high-powered sort of a place full of people, again, whether they realize it or not, longing to know the affections of a father will never let them go. And so the Corinthians think, great, well, let's, let's bring people into relationship with God. How do we do it? Answer is in verse 18, through the message of the cross. And if that doesn't sound staggering to us, um, it's, become, it's because we're, we're coming after 2,000 years of Christianity being on the scene. Because when that first hit the world, that uh, Christians are claiming that the world can come to know its maker through a message about a man dying on a cross, it struck almost everybody as absolutely ridiculous. To say that the way for a human being to know God is through believing a message about a man in the dust of first century Roman Palestine being executed? Silliness. And in fact, we're going to see this evening that, in a way, it's even worse than that, because the grand strategy, the way that God works in the world, the way that the world is going to know the affections of a father who'll never let them go, is through a weak message being proclaimed to weak people by weak messengers. It's almost kind of insulting on the face of it. It's insulting to the world. Does, does God not care enough about the world to come up with a better plan than that? It's aspects of this passage that are insulting to Christians. It's going to say, you have been included in God's plans for the world. Why? Because God's plans for the world are all about weakness and foolishness, and God thought that we were good candidates for that. Thank you very much. But in fact, the very thing that looks to the world like nonsense, the cross, the church, Christian ministry, when you look at it the right way up, what you see is power and wisdom. And so that's what we're going to do for a few minutes together. We're going to try and look at it the right way up. And um, we're going to think about the weak message from verse 18 to 25. Think about the weak recipients, the weak people it comes to, verse 26 to 31. And then the weak messengers, the weak people who speak it. Those verses from chapter 2. And three times Paul repeats what his big purpose and agenda is. Uh, verse 19, he says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And then again in verse 29, says God did it the way he did it, so that no one may boast before him. And then again in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So God does things the way that he does them so that there is zero room left for human pride. That's what Paul wanted to show the Corinthians. It's a famous hymn that we sometimes sing, um, written by Isaac Watts, that starts, when I survey the wondrous cross, when I think about the cross, on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count as loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. And as 
Paul wrote these verses, I think he wanted to sort out the Corinthians thinking so that they would pour contempt on their pride. So let's think first about the weak message from verse 18 to 25. Verse 18, I'll read. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Crucifixion was a horrific thing. It was the form of execution that the Romans reserved for when they really wanted to kind of stamp their imperial power and absolutely humiliate to the dust whoever it was that was opposing them. It's all about humiliation and shame and pain. Cicero's Roman author said, let the cross be removed not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their ears, their eyes. It's a deliberately horrific shameful thing. And the idea that Christians looked at the crucifixion of Jesus and saw there on the one hand Jesus hanging on the cross and on the other hand the whole might of imperial Rome stamping its authority and said this one's the powerful one. Jesus is the victor in this scene was a laughable idea. In fact look at uh, 1 Corinthians you see what people thought of it at the time. Verse 18 That is foolishness. Verse 23, it's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. A ridiculous thought. And today, in lots of ways, it's true that the cross is viewed differently to that. We we don't think of the cross as a ridiculous or embarrassing or shameful thing quite in, in the same way. We put it on buildings and necklaces and tattoos, and we think that the idea of the strong sacrificing themselves for the sake of the weak is a good thing, which is a a totally Christian innovation. The, The way we think about the cross has changed, but even so, even still today, the idea of the cross as the thing that saves us, the thought that the way for anybody to get to heaven is by entrusting yourself to the death of a criminal 2,000 years ago, a long way away, The thought that the cross is how the the great first cause of all reality has chosen to do his thing. The idea that nobody can know God except through Jesus' death. Well, um, Richard Dawkins sums it up a couple of times um, in his book, The God Delusion, when he calls it barking mad. The message of the cross says that God takes our sin and our rejection of him so seriously that he won't allow it to go unpunished, but that he loves us to such an extent that he poured out all of the punishment on his son. And it says that that is the only way for a person to be saved. Verse 20 says that that is very off-putting to people who are wise in human terms. or or, or well-educated, or philosophically inclined. It's off-putting to them because it says to them, all of your learning does not help save you. Verse 21, the world, through its wisdom, didn't know God. The very best efforts of human beings. You take take the best human thought that's ever been produced. You take the the most astonishing human accomplishment and you are not a step nearer to knowing God and having relationship with him. You need the cross of Jesus 
to do that. And that's a hard thing for people to hear. And it's not really where people are looking if they want to find out about God. Verse 22 says, um, by and large, the Jewish people in Corinth were looking for miraculous signs to show God. And it's fair enough that they should be looking for miraculous signs. They got an Old Testament full of God doing miraculous signs, like parting the Red Sea and all that sort of stuff. That's what they're looking to, to, to see God. And Gentile Greeks, verse 22, were looking for a good argument um, in order to, to see God. And fair enough, you would expect that God would be accessed through um, something very clever. I don't know where you'd say that people in Oxford look to, to see God and to see what he's like. Maybe it is still to the philosophers, like in Corinth in the first century. Maybe it's instead to kind of wait for an inward sense of God or, or listen to their heart. But Paul says, you're all looking in the wrong place. It's the, the death of Jesus on the cross. That is how you can come to know God, and that alone. And the thing is, that sounds really stupid until you actually receive it. Because when you do and, and you get past just how strange it seems, you realize, verse 24, that to those whom God has called, Jews, Greeks, whoever they are, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what you start to see as you actually receive it. You start to see that nothing wiser or more brilliant than the cross has ever happened because I mean how could a, a just God take a guilty you and a guilty me and say this one is in the right with me the only way that could happen is through the cross by, by paying the price for all of my sin in his death nothing more powerful has ever happened verse 25 says it, it, it far surpasses the most brilliant things that human beings have ever achieved. Because the cross can transfer people from spiritual death forever to life forever. Nothing else could do anything as, anywhere near as powerful as that. I read a while ago um, Yuval Noah Harari's book, Homo Deus, and in it he says all sorts of things. But one of them is that one day soon, human beings will be able to solve death uh, because death is just a, it's a technical problem. And even if he's right, and by the way, I'm certain he's wrong, even if he's right, God has been doing that for 2,000 years already through the cross. Power and wisdom of God. And why has he done it that way? Why? Through the weak message of his son, to destroy the wisdom of the wise, Paul says. To stop human beings from ever thinking, well, the way to God is to come up with clever stuff or to be brilliant. So God has put at the heart of everything something that looks very foolish to us. But it's actually the power of God. So let's never lose heart in this. So easy to begin to find the cross a little bit embarrassing because it is just weird, isn't it? And, and counterintuitive and grisly that this is how God would, would do his thing in the world. Easy to think, can't we talk about a version of Christianity that's fundamentally about Something else, fundamentally, about kindness or about community or about social change. Can't we put that at the center of things? But we'd be mad to do that because it is fundamentally about the cross of Jesus. That is where the power is. And that actually is where kindness and community and social change flow from anyway. Keep it at the center. Keep it at the heart. Weak message. 
Next, weak recipients, the weak people who hear this message, verse 26 to 31. And these next two points really flow out of that first one. Because just as you might expect God to do his thing in the world through a clever and plausible sounding message, you'd also probably expect God to think, okay, I want, I want, to, you know, I want to bring people into relationship with me. I want people to know about me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to identify the key movers and shakers in the world and I'll come to them first and that would be a kind of logical strategy for God. But the first thing we've seen is already hinted that that is not likely to be the case because the question is who, who would accept a message like the cross? And the answer is only somebody who is prepared to accept that all of the world's categories for what strength and power look like are wrong. The only people who would accept the message of the cross are people willing to say, well, the only thing that can help me is the Son of God dying in my place. I'm well beyond any other sort of help. And that is not something that high-powered, impressive people tend to say. Remember, um, last week we were thinking about the fact that the Corinthians, they quite like thinking of themselves as um, impressive and, and having strong, impressive leaders. And in that context, um, I think these verses from 26 onwards are meant to be gently insulting. Um, verse 26, Paul says to them, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. He says to them, if you look at yourselves in the cold light of day, um, you're not actually that impressive. In fact, you're only included in God's plans because God is not looking for impressive people. Verse 27, God chose the foolish things of this world. That's you, Corinthians, he says. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not. He's saying, have a look around. That's who we are. A bit like the moment in the school playground where you are picking teams and imagine there is one team captain picking teams along the normal lines. He's, he's looking for the, you know, the strong and tall and athletic looking people. And then imagine there is another team captain who is picking people with no hand-eye coordination, uh, bad eyesight, holes in their shoes and a proven track record of being rubbish at playground football. Now, if you are picked for that team, one thing you are not going to be is proud about it. You're not going to be boasting about having been picked. Paul says, God's logic is not to choose the impressive, but to choose the foolish and the weak. That was most of the church in Corinth. A small minority, it looks like, were, were well-educated and well-connected, um, as is true in relative terms of, of lots of us here. And for people like that, it's especially important for them to realize that they stand before God with nothing to offer, absolutely no way of marketing themselves to him. It's hard for anybody to admit that, but perhaps especially for those who are used to marketing themselves and to looking good. Jesus says, um, unless you receive the kingdom like a little child, you will not enter it. Not saying you have to be a little child um, to receive the kingdom, but you have to think, 
I'm just receiving a gift here. Um, I'm not impressing my way in in any way. And if all of that was true um, in Corinth, um, it is still true here today. It is possible, isn't it, to feel embarrassed about other Christians. Um, certainly, you know, other Christians on TV and in the media, typically it's quite easy to feel embarrassed about those people. But even, even here, to look around and think, well, these people are my brothers and sisters, but it's not the, it's not the coolest gathering in Oxford, is it? Or probably it's not the highest average IQ of any gathering. Forgive me, I'm just sort of saying as I see it, but... <laughs> There's not, there's not that many names to conjure with. Not, not, not that many people where you kind of walk into a party and say, oh yeah, I go to church with so-and-so. It's easy to start thinking that way. Or, or to walk into, uh, sorry, to, to invite your friends to school see you or something, but kind of hope that they don't end up meeting too many people or at least not meeting the wrong people. Because we want them to be impressed by us. We want them to be impressed by Christianity, and so we only expose them to the impressive bits of Christianity. But Paul's saying, well, there's not actually very many of those. Hensley Henson was a bishop of Durham in the 1920s and 30s, and he described evangelicals in the Church of England at the time as an army of illiterates generaled by octogenarians, which is very rude of him, wasn't it? But you see, we're saying that they're pathetic, they're weak. Um, hardly any of them are influential. And um, his description, at least among some people, became a little bit of, badge, of a badge of honor. Because God has deliberately chosen an unimpressive team so that no one can boast. Verse 29. Um, except, verse 31, to boast in God himself. There's nothing else to boast in. <laughs> By and large, at least to the outsider, the, the, the people are naff. The message sounds daft. All the power comes from God. He's what we're going to boast in. Weak message, weak recipients, and then finally these verses from chapter 2, a weak messenger. Chapter 2, verse 1, it's almost as though before the Corinthians get too offended with what Paul is saying, he says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. In other words, this isn't a power play that Paul is making here. Um, he's not saying, well, look, some people are strong, other people are weak, mostly you, Corinthians. Some are strong, some are weak, and everybody's just got to know their place. It's not what he's saying. It's not what Christianity is saying. In fact, it is saying everybody is weak and God is strong, and the only question is, do we accept that or not? Paul says when he had come to tell them about Jesus in the first place, um, he hadn't done it impressively. Um, it's recorded in uh, Acts chapter 18. And as far as we're aware from there, there haven't really been miracles. There haven't been dazzling speeches. Paul says here, verse 2, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not that um, Paul was just a rubbish speaker. Um, or that he kind of deliberately gave boring and incoherent talks when he was in Corinth. Christians are not aiming at doing stuff badly. But the point is that Paul put all of the emphasis not on himself, but on Jesus, and specifically on what Jesus did on the cross. That was his emphasis. That's what he thought, if I tell them that, things will happen. And so now he says, Corinthians, don't, don't get excited now about 
having impressive or strong leaders, how many, how many followers your leaders have got, because God doesn't work through that. He works through the message of the cross, and verse, end of verse 4, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I think what he's talking about there is, um, we've already seen that the power of God, Paul says, and the wisdom of God, is the message of the cross. And so the demonstration of the Spirit's power was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit taking the message of the cross and applying it to people's hearts so that they were transformed um, and, and changed forever, rescued. And all of that uh, is, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So God exercises his power as a weak-sounding message about the cross of Jesus, lands in the midst of a weak-looking group of people, brought to them by weak messengers. And that is the ignition that brings reconciliation to a world that longs to know. A few weeks ago, um, here in Oxford at the university, um, the Christian Union had their events week. A number of you here will have been involved. And Christian Union had been running stuff like that for quite a long time. And um, they ran one in 1960 that I was reading about a little while ago. And that year, in 1960, in the February, the college chaplains had run their own events week. Um, and uh, the speaker was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Mark, Michael Ramsey. And his talks were later written up and became a best-selling book. And the, uh, the Christian Union uh, events week happened later on in the November, and it was led by a, a preacher who nobody had really heard of. The chaplains held theirs in the Sheldonian Theatre. The poor old Christian Union had to make do with holding theirs at St. Ebb's Church, which um, one of them in the minutes described as a bit tucked away in the slums. <laughs> but um, when the Christian Union speaker addressed uh, the Christians before the week, he acknowledged all of that, and he said, this puts us very low, which is exactly where we want to be. And then he spoke on verse 28 here. Here is God's plan. I wonder how you feel about it. Perhaps just in closing, I can say one thing to those who are here who are not yet Christians and uh, a couple of things to those who are. If you're here and um, you're not yet a Christian, could it be that the reason you're not a Christian is that you're too proud? It might not be. It might be, you know, these things are still new and need a bit more information, you need a bit of clarification on what the message of the cross actually is, all of that kind of stuff, maybe. But maybe that isn't the issue for you anymore, but you think, yeah, but I want to believe in something that sounds good. To, to make the cross of Jesus the central theme of my life just feels, maybe you wouldn't express it this way, but feels slightly beneath me. And these people, do I, do I really want to be one of them? Do I really want to be a part of a movement which has got one entry criterion, namely acknowledged weakness that prompts me to turn to God? See, most, most other religions you'll come across will say, in one form or another, there is, 
there is a bar for you to clear. You have to, you have to get over it, and you're going to have to work hard. And for lots of us, that kind of appeals to our pride, that sort of a message. We like a challenge. I'll see if I can do that. I bet I can. But the message of the cross says there is a bar, and we need to go under it. We need to humble ourselves, to accept that our need of help is desperate, and that God has set everything up so that all boasting from now on is nonsense. Perhaps that's the thing holding you back. Don't let it be. Um, Or pride will have come before the biggest fall of all. Just to finish, for Christians, a warning and an encouragement from these verses. A warning, I think, don't don't let pride creep in. We we live in a world of CVs and self-promotion and subscribers, and it's really easy to let that attitude sneak into our Christian lives and just sort of begin to have a Christianized version of it. Don't allow yourself to start to feel ashamed of the other people you gather around Jesus with. Don't get embarrassed about the message itself. The temptation ever since Corinth, if not before, right up to today, has been to kind of judge Christianity up a little bit. Tweak the message, make it less weird, put the cool people at the front. Stick with this version the one about weak people and even a weak-looking God. Survey the wondrous cross again this evening so that you pour contempt on all your pride. And an encouragement. Um, who here, I won't ask that, who here doesn't feel weak? Who, who, I mean, which Christian doesn't feel weak? There have been points this week where you know, thinking about all this stuff, I've said to the Lord, I cannot believe that you are planning to use me to tell them about you this week. With all my sin and all my frailty, what could you possibly be thinking? Lots of us will have tried to explain something about the cross uh, to a friend and, and thought as you're saying it, gosh, this just doesn't sound like very much. Had that, had that experience in this room just over a week ago. But in the midst of those feelings, got to remember how God works in the world and actually how he's worked all the way through the Bible. Abraham said to God, surely you can't use me. I'm years past my sell-by date. Moses said, please will you send somebody else? I'm no good at speaking. Isaiah said, surely not me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah said, I hate speaking for you, Lord. It's awful. Peter said, not the cross, Lord Jesus, not the cross. You can't, you can't be thinking of going there. What could be worse? Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. And God says, this is the plan. Look at the cross. God has flipped upside down strength and weakness. And now he sends us out in that kind of upside down strength. God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Well, as weak things, let's come before him in prayer, asking for his help. Father, we praise you for the message of the cross. And we praise you for helping us to see it as what it really is, weird, counterintuitive, but power and wisdom. Thank you that 
by it we're saved. And thank you that you choose us weak, foolish, not very much to offer type people and use in your plans. And we pray that gladly we'd be drawn into your service and that we'd be drawn in in such a way that all boasting is put aside and all the praise and honor is yours. Please might that be true of us in the week to come. In Jesus' name, amen.